invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2. Last week we looked at the first chapter of Genesis and the creation of count, account of all that there is, and how God created us, created man in his image, that we are not animals or plants, we are distinct from all other parts of creation, and that we are made in his image. And that, therefore, affects how we should view ourselves, how we view others, and especially the weak and the helpless. This morning, let's look at God's creation of marriage, beginning in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its flesh, its, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and we're not ashamed. Before we talk about marriage, it may be a good idea to pray. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to this uh, passage of Scripture, and from our backgrounds, we may have very mixed emotions. Some of us grew up in families that the, had a mother and father that loved each other and committed to their marriages. Some of us did not. Uh, some of us have been through broken marriages. Some here have had great marriages, and now their spouse is no longer living. We pray for your guidance now. Give us submissive hearts to your word and your will. Mold us into the people you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God wants his children to flourish, and that's why he gave us marriage. But today, marriage is not exactly flourishing. If you were to describe marriage, at least in America today, you probably would not use the word flourishing. Um, you have such much divorce, strong movements, a juggernaut across the nation to change the definition and parameters of marriage, large and growing numbers of unmarried couples who live together and have no plans to marry. So marriage in America I would not describe as flourishing. But ironically... Engagements and wedding ceremonies are grander than ever. Um, I would advise someone, if you're going into business today, and please note my sarcasm, go into the wedding business. You get repeat customers today. I mean, they're back. They're back two, three, four times. Uh, and they're grander than ever. You know, engagements make news, and weddings are huger and more expensive, and I have a man, uh, he's a, he was at that time an assistant pastor at Fraser Methodist Church in Montgomery, huge church, largest Methodist church in the country, at least at that time. And we were seated together at an after-rehearsal dinner when my niece was getting married. 
And we enjoyed talking and found out we had some of the same friends. And he told me in our talking that he, uh, he was a counselor also and that he had instituted at Fraser the premarital counseling program before someone could get married. <laughs> and I said, oh, uh, so y'all switched from nothing to having this. I said, I bet that made some people upset. He said, oh, one woman called. One woman called and talked to me. She was so mad. I said, you're going to do what? I have got to do what? I have got to have four meetings or six meetings with my fiancé to talk about getting married? And she was so ticked off. And then she said, the churches in my previous two weddings didn't do that. <laughs> and I responded just the way you did. I laughed. And I said, did she see any humor? He said, not at all. She was dead serious with that. Well, integral to human flourishing is marriage. And integral to culture's flourishing is marriage. And so it's right here at the very beginning of the story. It's foundational. It's as though God says, you got to get this right or nothing else will work. If you get marriage wrong, other things go wrong. Marriage matters. Now, because God wanted us to flourish, he not only provided marriage, he provide, provided a marriage partner. Now, just by review, in Genesis up to this point, we've had nothing but benediction. Bena, good word, good word. That phrase is used over and over. God made it. It was good. Seven times has happened leading up to this point. Seven times. In fact, the seventh time, it was very good. But now something suddenly changes in verse 18 of chapter 2. Not good. Malediction. Not good. What's not good? It's not good that man be alone. And what is strange about it or startling about it is where this is happening. It's in paradise. It's in paradise. There's no sin yet. That's in chapter 3. There's no fall. Yet something is not right. Adam has God at this point. If you had counseled Adam at that time, I would have said, Adam, look, well, something's missing. There's emptiness in your life. How's your relationship with God? Are you doing your devotions? Are you reading? Well, you don't have any scripture yet, but are you, re are you, are you praying like you should? It was perfect. It was paradise. There was no issue to resolve such as that. He lacked something, though, and he lacked companionship. He lacked what we know God was going to create a wife. So now this amazing drama plays out. Here's the king of creation, God, who spoke, speaks everything into existence. And here's Adam, his vice regent, his vice king, so to speak. And God is bringing, parading before Adam, it tells us in the passage. These beasts of the field, the birds of the air, all these creatures are paraded before Adam, and he's naming them. Many people speculate that Adam was brilliant and that the intellect from the very beginning was much higher than what we have now. So he's, he's naming these animals based on something he sees about them. And yet there's this growing sense of emptiness. There's this loneliness. Something is missing in Adam. There's no helper suitable for him. So God does surgery. He puts Adam to sleep, puts him on the surgical tables, operating table, so to speak. And the next thing we know when he comes to, yikes, there's a woman. And what he says in verse 23, this at last. I mean, there's, there's a, we don't know how long Adam has been thinking about this, but it was long enough for him to go, at last, at last, 
And then he gives this Hebrew phrase that one of my professors said was a compliment. You are now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I tell engaged couples, if he were to say that to you, would you kiss him or slap him? You know, what does it mean? But it was, wow, yes, 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 at last. And God gives two words to describe this person that he has made. Verse 18, a helper. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, right away, our 21st century American eye said, well, there's, that's a demeaning term. A woman's a helper. It's like, go rake the, rake the yard. No, I think I'll go find a $5 an hour helper to do it. No, Genesis 1 says God made man, male and female, in his image. And not only men are given dominion over the earth to subdue it, male and female are to join together to have dominion over the creation and to subdue it. So a woman's place is to join, the wife's place is to join her husband in exercising dominion over the earth with him. It's up to them to decide how they are going to accomplish the task that God has given them. So does the term helper mean that Eve, who's not named yet, he calls her that later, Eve was less than Adam? No, the word help is used in the Bible as a military term primarily to describe God. This word is used to describe God as a helper. The picture is you are crushed down, you are almost defeated, you are about to expire, and God comes to help. And so that's the description given to her, that she, like God himself, is a help. It's a strong one coming to the aid of the needy. So this is not the picture of a weak partner or a lackey of some sort. This is a strong one, the strong coming to the aid of the the weak. We sing, oh God, our help in ages past. Now, women, I know what you're thinking. See, (laughs) I told you. I told you we were the better sex. Well, the Bible also says husbands in Ephesians 5, we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. What does that do? We help her. So here is a helping partner in a complementary relationship. They need each other. Both have significant voids without the other. He could not fulfill God's commission on his own. How could one person be fruitful and multiply? We cannot. We need each other. You say, hey, so far so good. I like this helper part. Well, sit tight. Now we come to the second word. And that is, I'll make a helper fit for him. Now I've trained, I've read in years and done wedding ceremonies with the New American Standard Version, and it says suitable. And so if you hear me preaching, I had a hard time reading it. I went slow because I'm so used to thinking in the New American Standard Version, and this is a little different in the English Standard Version. But the word is suitable or fit. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now this may surprise you literally to know that the word fit means opposite. I will make a helper opposite him. God says he's going to make someone opposite to fulfill that person. He thought it was a good idea to give us an opposite. And so he made a woman. We have terms today like egalitarian, which means equals. But what is taught here is not egalitarianism, not equals, but complements, which is something that fills up or completes or makes perfect the other. So God says, I'm going to make a complementary opposite. The best analogy I know is like two pieces of a puzzle. If you take two pieces of a puzzle and you were to set them on a table, you say, well, they're completely opposite. 
that one has this thing that sticks out over here and the other one goes in. Well, they're opposite until they fit together. So God puts them together for this fit. And this has huge implications for your life and mine. Do you realize that the Bible is saying right here at the very beginning that gender differences are at the very core of creation? At the very core. He made us male and female. We are not generic. We are gender specific. And they are not interchangeable. God made us male or female. And a male cannot be paired with another male and have the deepest longings of his heart fulfilled and satisfied. A female cannot be paired with another female and have the deepest longings of her heart satisfied. We were created distinct for a reason. Now, anatomically, that's very obvious. But our culture, and it's only going to increase, wants to blend the genders, to act as though there are no innate differences. I was taught this. Uh, I was taught this in, the, in my educational background, that we are male or female strictly because of our socialization, that a baby is born as a blank palette. And then you're taught to be female because you're dressed in pink and given dolls to play with. And boys are taught to be boys by being given a, a baseball and a bat and dressed up like a cowboy. And the truth in the scriptures is we are created inescapably distinct. And speaking to you as a pastor, you cannot escape the way that God has made you. And to do otherwise will only yield confusion and heartache in your life. And so God sends into Adam's life an opposite. And that is why from the get-go, marriage requires tremendous forbearance. You are one flesh with somebody who's an alien. It's an alien. And this other, this opposite does not think, communicate, spend money, solve problems, approach things, view things, child raising, family. Everything is different. It is opposite. It is very different. People in the church ask, people in the church ask, well, what's the great attraction of same-sex relationships? What's the attraction of it? Well, here's one observation, and you can argue with me if you want to later. But I'm, I'm around a fair bit of this. It's easy. It's easier to relate to somebody just like you. It's hard to relate to somebody who's an opposite. But God knew we needed opposites. I've got a pastor friend. We were in seminary together, and he's pastored as long as I have here. He's been in Crystal River, Florida. He's a pastor of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church. And he did something several years ago I thought was wise. There were, as these young couples were coming to be married, he asked some of the older, more mature couples in the church to write letters like the women to write letters to the new bride and the men to write letters to the, to the new groom. And here's what one woman wrote to this new bride, this young bride. The older woman wrote, He probably looks almost perfect to you right now. Beautifully dressed, love in his eyes. But believe me and all the other married women in this room, there will come a day he won't look so great. He won't always lead you listen to you, love you, or lavish you the way you want. And if you have children, you may think he is ruining them with his crazy ideas of parenting. But I challenge you this day to make it your goal and your way of life to give him your respect, for that's honoring to God. It's a task you will daily fail. 
He will be a goof-up. He will not be as smart as you in some things. And he won't always understand the wonderful ways of the southern belle. But what I now know that I did not know when I was a young bride is that this respect from you will give him the strength that he so desperately needs to, to grow and flourish as a man and as a husband. My wife and I are opposites in countless ways, but I can honestly tell you that because God has given me the gift of being married to her, that I am far more the man that God created me to be. And so God not only gives a marriage partner, he also gives a marriage pattern. And that's in verse 24. Here's the pattern for marriage. It's amazingly simple. You talk about an economy of words. Here it is. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That is God's pattern for marriage. This is the first of two sermons I plan to preach on marriage. All through the rest of the Bible, when it teaches about marriage in the New Testament, it goes back to this verse. Because this is where God established it. This is the pattern. <clears throat> there are three components. First, therefore a man shall leave. He will separate from his family. Basically what that means, it may mean geographically, but at the heart of it, it means you are saying your spouse is your priority now, more so than your father or your mother. Now this concept of appropriate leaving is a challenge. And it can be a challenge. Mark Driscoll, the pastor of Mars Hill in Seattle, many of you here have read his, listened to his sermons, read some of his books. He's written and studied a whole lot on this subject because the vast majority of that huge congregation in many locations is singles and single men. And so writing primarily to men, he said, and I quote, for most of human history, a male would go through two life phases, boy, then man. The transition from boy to man was comprised of five events that happened almost simultaneously or in very close succession. As a man, you were first, you were to leave your parents' home. Two, finish your education or vocational training. Three, start a career track job. Four, meet a woman, love her, honor her, court her, and marry her. And five, parent children with her. But now, rather than moving from boyhood to manhood by this succession of sociological transitions, he goes on to say, we have created a third life stage in the middle called adolescence, or what I call boys who shave. Today, adolescence starts somewhere in the teen years and in many cases continues indefinitely. The problem with adolescence is we guys don't know when we're ever going to grow up and be men. And no pressure is exerted on us to do so. So when do we grow up and become men? No one knows. We are left with the Peter Pan syndrome where some men want to remain boys forever. If we do make the transition to manhood, many husbands and fathers revert back to adolescence with something called a midlife crisis. There's nothing wrong with being a boy so long as you're a boy. But there's a lot wrong with being a boy when you're supposed to be a man. Enabling this type of guy are a legion of moms and girlfriends who pay his bills, pick up his mess, lend him their cars, and keep him supplied with alcohol and a steady diet of snacks. Now you can read more from Mark Driscoll, but that's just the beginning of that particular chapter. So God designed marriage for the man to leave father and mother. This was striking. 
to the Israelites, remember this is written by Moses right after they had come out of Egypt, after 400 years of slavery, where honoring mother and father were held in such high regard. So for him, for God to say through Moses, you shall leave your father and mother would have been very, very striking. Often it is a big challenge for the parents as it is for the children. When Barbara and I were married, this was a very, very difficult transition for me, not for her. See, I had been taught as a Christian in high school, I had been heavily influenced by the teaching of Bill Gothard that God speaks through chains of authority and that our parents in many ways become the voice of God. And I carried that into marriage. And it probably took six or eight years to get away from it where I could make a decision without needing my parents' input. Some major, she was very patient. Second component, it also says the man shall hold fast or cleave to his wife. We don't use the word cleave like this much now, but it means to unite permanently. It's a great word, to stick, to make a binding promise or an oath, to pledge your absolute loyalty to that person with public oaths and witnesses who see it. It is an act of social accountability. It is a public vow. But they, today people scoff at marriage. They scoff at the idea and they say, we don't need just a piece of, just to love one another. I don't need a piece of paper to love one another. Well, that's what really matters. Well, here are some considerations. Here are some reasons it should be a public vow. One, it is an act of love to stand and say those vows publicly that it is this one and no other. There is no back door, there's no escape plan, there's no exit strategy. This is going to be legally recorded in public. God has brought us together and I'm committing myself to you for life. And if you do not do that publicly, then it was very questionable whether you really love that person enough to be married to him. Reason number two for binding public oaths, marriage is hard. And we have all, every one of us, been heavily influenced by the consumer culture which wants always to trade what we have for something better. It's just ingrained in us. We are deeply oriented this way. If I don't like my cell phone, I'll break the contract. I won't even wait till the 18 months are up. Hey, let's get a new one. If my car's not what meeting my needs, I'll get another one. If my house, if my job, if the school, if the church isn't meeting my needs, I trade. Hopefully it'll be an upgrade. And in marriage or just relationships in general, if it's not meeting my needs, if I'm not getting more out of this than I'm putting into it, if I feel I'm putting effort and I'm not getting the love and affirmation I need, then I'm cutting my losses and I'm moving on to another option. And that's ingrained in us. And so there's power in public oaths. If you want to sustain a long-term relationship on romantic feelings, good luck, as our Presbyterian forefathers would say, you know. Romance is a good thing. Infatuation is fun and exhilarating. And the more you can build that into your marriage and nurture it and kindle it, do so. But know for certain that infatuation and romantic feelings cannot and will not sustain a relationship. And this is so important for couples who are going into marriage to know. So they won't panic when they won't panic, when they wake up that day and said, I don't feel like I love this person. I don't know that I want to love this person. And more than one couple, you hear them talking. Some of you would say this in this room that are married, even on the honeymoon, even in the wedding ceremony, they were thinking, what have I done? I'm on this airplane with him. I'm stuck in this metal tube 
trapped. And when they know that, they realize these things come and go. And it will come. And sometimes it won't for days, weeks, and some may be for years. But you cannot sustain a relationship on romantic feelings. But you've made an oath. And so today, and I'm not just picking on our president. I'm picking on the, the mind, our whole culture. How is gay marriage being sold? It's a talking point. It started about halfway through last year, and that is if two adults love one another, they ought to be entitled to be married. They all say it. It comes out. You're gonna, you can write it down. If two adults love one another, they ought to be entitled to be married. What's this? Nothing is said about love here. It's covenant. The marriage is built on the covenant, not love. And because I've made a covenant with this person, I love her. And I will do loving things for her. You're going to feel like romantic when you've got cancer or when you're entering the bedpan if this person's just thrown up because they're sick and you're caring for them because you keep your marriage vows? No, there will be no, I can promise you, there will be no romantic feelings at that point. I have watched a number, well, I'll save it for next week. Let me move on to the third point. Third component says, and they shall become one flesh. There's to be unity, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And so sexual intercourse, the one flesh union here, is the outward physical expression of that unity which pervades all the other areas. Sex is covenant renewal. (laughs) That may be a new thought for some of you. Sex is covenant renewal. That's why you only have sex with someone with whom you've made the covenant. If you're not in covenant with them then you can't renew the covenant through sexual intercourse. In the church, we observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is covenant renewal. What does it do? It reminds us that we belong to him, that Jesus is our husband, that our relationship with God, it's not based on the sacrament. We don't build the relationship with God on partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder, and it's physical. We taste it, we smell it, we sense it. It's an outward physical sign of an inward reality. That's why we have such strong warnings in Corinthians about don't partake of the Lord's Supper if you don't really believe, or if you're not in Christ, you're eating and drinking damnation to yourself because you're, you're, taking the, you're renewing the covenant that doesn't exist if you don't have faith in him. If you've not been adopted into his family, so God warns, don't partake of the covenant renewal, the sign of the covenant. Sex in a marriage is covenant renewal. And so that's what it is. It's a physical expression of the inward, spiritual, emotional unity. So don't have sex with someone unless you're willing to bind yourself to them alone with an oath for the rest of your life. I, you people, you, I come to first... One man walked after first... I'm sorry, he walked out after first service and he said, let's hear it for covenant renewal. That's what he said. <laughs> he was married, by the way. All right, how do we get the power? I probably shouldn't tell y'all what the rest of y'all say. How do we get the ability to make a lifelong commitment? I mean, honestly, wouldn't we just look at this and say, I can't keep this. You know, I can't. I rely on my feelings. I'm I'm wishy-washy. I can't do this. How do we get the ability in marriage to make a lifelong commitment? We may say, I don't know what's going to happen five years from now. I don't know what's going to happen ten years from now. How can I commit myself like that? Where do we get the power to do this and have a marriage which truly flourishes? And the answer is, the Bible's answer is marriage is a picture of a greater relationship. It's the picture of a relationship with God. 
The Bible is, says that God is so daring, he's so daring that he's not satisfied to leave our relationship with him only as like a king and servants or Lord and, and, and mastering over us or even as a shepherd with sheep, even as a father and his children. What does it say in Isaiah? In chapter 62, it says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. And he looks at us as church, and we are the bride. And Hosea says we are like prostitutes, chasing after other things, and God takes us for his own. He is my helper through faith in Christ. He is not like me. He is my opposite. But he is suitable. And he is the very one we need. Is your trust in Christ today? Have you looked to him for the forgiveness of sins and to make you right with God? He gives us the promise of life everlasting. He promises to be a faithful groom to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, our, our husband, uh, we have not been faithful to you in many ways. We follow after every idol that comes along. And yet through Jesus we are so grateful today that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have purpose to life, that you've not left us in darkness. You give us instruction even about basic areas like marriage that are so foundational. Lord, we would pray today for those of us who are married in this room. None of us have perfect marriages. Maybe some of them are far from it. Maybe they are more like war zones than places of complementary strengths. We pray today that you might bring healing, that you might help us to stand on our covenant and rekindle romantic love where it's lacking. Uh, we pray that we would be reflections of the relationship of Christ in the church. We pray for those here who are not yet married and ask that you would prepare them as you build into them trust in you and following you in all areas. Pray for the young men, that they would be men who take responsibility and are leaders in every sense of the word, spiritually in every other way. Bring them someone who could be a true helper, a complimentary helper toward that. We pray for our brothers and sisters here who have been married and maybe now are divorced and ask that you administer to them and care for them and empower them to follow you in all areas. We pray for those whose spouses have gone to be with you and they've had a rib ripped out of their chest, Father, and they, they feel life will never be the same because they feel that they, they're only part of a person now. We ask that they also would know your peace and comfort and strength from your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.